message is part of the media ministry of Cornerstone Church. You can listen to this and other messages on our website at www.corner-stone.org or by subscribing to our podcast. You may be seated and open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 40. Ladies, thank you so much. It was beautiful this morning. Thank you for that. I stood here about three months ago and I asked one of those questions that uh, oftentimes I'll ask with a sermon. And uh, I'll ask, I asked about three and a half months ago, we were going through the Psalms at the time, and we just happened to be in Psalm 37 that morning. And uh, I said, how well do you wait? And guys, I don't know, sometimes I wish you could get the perspective that I get from up here. Um, there are certain topics that when you mention them, the countenance of the collective people just kind of goes down. One of those is prayer. Anytime somebody talks about prayer, the countenance, everybody just kind of looks down. You know, it's like, because none of us really feel like we really pray as we ought. And so it's one of those, it brings sometimes almost a guilt to us that, okay, this is something I know I can do better or more of. And when I asked a couple of weeks ago, or a couple of months ago, how well do you wait? I kind of got that same response, like, oh, great. If this is about waiting, I don't really wait well. Well, join the crowd, because I don't know that anybody really has said, you know, I got an A-plus in waiting. It's really not one of our long suits. It's not one of those things in humanity that we just really do well. And yet, as we said three months ago, it is just almost on every page of the Bible. It is a Christian discipline that if you don't develop, you really are going to at least be tested in that area. Because very few times is God ever going to just do things on your timetable before you expected them. Waiting is a spiritual discipline. And like all disciplines, it means that we have to develop kind of a muscle for that. And that muscle comes through just resting in the truth of God and resting to that, okay, even though we don't see this yet, we can know that it's happening. It's the very definition of faith. It's the very definition that we see in Hebrews of faith that says this is pleasing to God. In fact, without this kind of faith, this being able to see things, trust God, even in the darkness, that, that we can't even please God. So this is a big deal. Waiting is a big deal. It's not just your life. It is truly all of our lives collectively and independently together, that we are people that are in a stage of waiting. And so this morning, we're going to look at Joseph's life, and we're going to see from this aspect that God has called him to wait. And one of the things that we often talk about when we're looking uh, in the Word of God is that we have to be very careful always to take everything in context. Let's not just take a verse out and rob it of its context. We need to put it in the proper place. And one of the places that we uh, have to make sure that we're keeping context is when we see somebody's life, what we call a narrative. Sometimes I may refer, refer to it as the story of Joseph. I don't really like that word story because sometimes that's like, okay, Mother Goose and other fables. And, and these are real lives. These are people that really did live. And so I prefer the word narrative. Uh, if I say the word story, don't, you know, the, the religious police, don't, don't put me, don't log me up. But, but this is a narrative of his life. And one of the things that we have to be really care, careful with in the narratives of biblical characters is that it seems like God is really working pretty fast in their lives. Why? Because we may have, in a matter of 10 or 12 verses, something that happened over 10 or 12 years. So we're reading along, and we come to a, a Genesis chapter 40, 
And we're reading, okay, look, we started and there was this great dilemma. By the time we got to the end of chapter 40, the dilemma was over. God had solved that. And oftentimes, if we're not careful, because we know the rest of the story, hey, God's going to work this out. Little did we really comprehend that that took place over a 10, 15, 20, 25-year period. I shared something with the guys this morning, and I was talking about, uh, you know, there's always a sensitivity of time in people's life. There's always two perspectives. Whenever we used to uh, look for new staff members uh, at at Shadowbrook, when we were contemplating and had a search committee together, uh, sometimes, you know, we'd get that committee together, we're looking at a candidate, and... uh, you know, maybe only five of the, the seven could meet. So we said, let's not meet this Tuesday like we normally would. Let's just wait till next Tuesday. For us, we skipped one meeting. Instead of meeting this day and it being seven days to the next meeting, it was 14 days. I always tried. I can't say that I did this spotlessly. But I always tried to say, hey, Chairman, can you make sure you call that candidate? Because on our end, it was two weeks. On their end, it was 14 days. Have you ever been there before? To where, you know, you're doing something, you're waiting for somebody, and for them, it was one or two weeks. For you, it was 14 days and nights, sleepless nights perhaps. There's always two perspectives of time. And so when we begin to look into the Word of God, it's easy for us to to read this narrative of Joseph knowing the rest of the story and say, well, God's going to work out. Just hold on, just hold on. Well, I don't know that Joseph was saying, that God, you know, God's going to work this out. He knows that God is. He has a faith that God's going to work it out. And yet, when we begin to put a timeline to this, we see that it's not just verses, but it's years. Let's do that real quick. For all those that were in life group this morning, uh, you've kind of already done this. You've worked your, your math already. Genesis 37.2. Genesis 37.2 tells us these are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was pastoring the flock with his brothers. Remember when we covered that, we said how strange it was that it says, okay, this is kind of the the family, the generations of of Jacob, and yet it only mentions Joseph. Now, it leaves off the other 11 brothers, but it does tell us really something very important. That when this story begins, as far as the narrative that we're reading, how old is Joseph? He's 17, okay? Uh, We know the story because we've been going through Genesis that uh, his brothers kind of revile against him. They trade him to the Ishmaelite trade slavers. He ends up in Potiphar's home. Uh, God blesses him there. Remember we talked about that God was with him and so brought prosperity to him. He has authority. And uh, all of a sudden we find out that Potiphar's wife is very attractive to Joseph, uh, tries many, many times to kind of play upon him. He rightfully just runs away every single time and denies everything, eventually has to run out. Uh, This so scorns her that she makes up a lie, that it was Joseph that tried to advance on her, not the other way. And she tells that to Potiphar, and uh, Potiphar says, you you belong in jail. So Joseph goes to jail, and that's where we kind of left it last week, that he's in jail unjustified, not because he did wrong, but because he did right. And yet here he is in jail. And so how old is he? Well, we really don't know. The Bible doesn't tell us. The only clue that we get is in Genesis 41, 46. Realize that we're kind of getting a a little bit ahead into next week's. Genesis 41, 46. Spoiler alert. Joseph is eventually going to get out of jail. 
and he's actually going to be find success, not with Potiphar this time, but with Pharaoh himself. And it says, when Joseph was what? 30 years old when he entered the service of Pharaoh the king. So he was 17 when he leaves. He's 30 when he eventually gets to uh, this place under Pharaoh. The only other part of the timeline that we kind of get is back to Genesis 41, verse 1. When he's in this jail, he interprets dreams. That's what we're going to cover today. And he expects them to kind of tell Pharaoh, hey, there's this guy in jail, Joseph. He's a really great guy. He's a believer in God. And he can tell dreams. That was the plan. It was Joseph's plan. Unfortunately, it wasn't God's plan. And so Joseph, we know because of Genesis 41.1, it says, after two whole years, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing by the Nile. He's in jail for at least two years. So if we subtract that back out, Joseph is in jail somewhere when he's 26, 27, 28. We don't know if he's been in jail two years, three years, four years. We don't know. Here's what we do know. It has been now 10 or 11 years that he's been removed from his family, from his homeland, that he's been taken on this journey that he's not in full control of. He's still, get that, he is still a slave by all standards in this. Even though he rose in, in ability and in authority within Potiphar's house, he was still a slave. Don't, don't get this wrong. And now he is really, truly enslaved into a prison. Ten or eleven years, and yet we cover them in just a couple chapters. It's this classic case of two time frames of, of looking at time. Honestly, this morning, honestly, because God already knows the answer, okay? So you can't lie to him. You can lie to me, you can... Do you ever really, I mean, is there ever a thought that sometimes God forgets what time it is? That you have that very human thought? I mean, you know that he's a loving God. You know that he's a dear father. You know all these things, and and you really trust that. And so it's not that you lose your faith and that you really get even combated with God. But sometimes, have you ever felt like, going, God, do you know, this has been two years. It's been five years. It's been ten years. I'm ready for you to give answer to this. I know that you can. And I'm really kind of confused why you haven't. Sometimes, guys, it is just simple things in life. We're waiting that. And it can be even, I don't want to say that jobs are trivial, but maybe it's a job advancement or something like that. And in, really in the life scheme of life, I would put that on the trivial side. I'm not trying to trivialize that God gives us a place to work and a place of influence and all that. I'm just saying it's not always the most spiritual thing. But when you're trying to conceive, when you're a young couple and you're trying to conceive, it's not 11 verses, guys. It's 11 years. When you have an estranged son or daughter, it's not 11 verses. It's 11 years. And I want you to know this this morning. I believe with all my heart, God does know what time it is. And the mysteries of God and what he's doing in those 11 years, he's not trying to trivialize and say, well, you know, it's just 11 verses. Hold on to the next verse. I really do believe that God, in working his majesty of timing, that there is both a providence and a sovereignty of God, but there's a perfection of God. Somebody said this way, and I'm going to blow this 
you know, and not quote it right. But if we knew everything that God knows, we'd make the same decisions that God does. Have you ever heard that before? There's great wisdom in that. There's great simplicity in that. The problem is, here's the friction. I don't know everything that God knows. And so I'm still kind of living in faith to the future where God already knows the future. So easy with the story of Joseph to run. You know, we keep on saying, man, we're going to run to Genesis 50-20. This is our hope. And it really is our hope. And yet we said, isn't it kind of, I mean, from a human perspective, a little bit unfair that we have 13 chapters of friction and only one verse of completion? And maybe that's where you are this morning. You're, you're in those years of, of, of friction. And you're just praying. You, you know that God's going to bring it to completion. And yet that's just not really where you are. I don't expect you to remember this stat from three months ago when we were looking at Psalms 37, but I gave you a stat that morning, and that is 28 times in the Old Testament, the the Bible tells us to specifically wait where God is the object of that waiting. Not just, okay, wait, but wait upon the Lord. We see that in Psalms 27, 14, where there's a waiting that God is asking us to do, but it's actually God is the object of that waiting. Look what it says. We studied this three months ago. Wait for who? For the Lord. He's the object of this waiting. It's not just, hey, wait for the answer. The object of this waiting, the focus of this waiting is on God. And it's so important for us to grasp that, that the psalmist put it at the beginning and the end of this verse. Wait for the Lord. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. And I'm glad that he put it in there twice, beginning and end. Because I be, need to be reminded of that truth very, very much. 28 times in the Old Testament alone that we see God as the object of our waiting. Now, why does the Bible tell us to wait for God? Because the Bible wants us to know that he is the one that is in control. Now, again, uh, we can talk another day about the the theological concept of causation, that God is causing everything to happen, or that God is sovereign over all things that happen. It gets a little bit of complexity. Here's what we need to know this morning. There's nothing that escapes God. There's nothing that God is not sovereign uh, over. That does not mean that he causes everything. He certainly does not cause you and I to sin. And sometimes sin in our lives, can sin delay something that God has for us? Yeah. We can just miss the boat. It wasn't because God didn't have a boat coming. It's just we, we weren't in the port. Go ask Jonah. You know, that, that we just were rebellious against it. So sometimes it's just our own sin. Other times because God is developing muscle and maturity. Uh, how many of you, uh, if your kid came up to you, we're just going to take Emma. And Emma comes up and goes, you know, Mom, Dad, I think that I'm ready for college. And I've selected UGA. Cresha, are you ready to send her off? This semester to UGA. How old are you now, Emma? Twelve. Okay. And a very mature twelve at that. No, you're going to, Emma, you're a smart young lady and you're mature for your age and this, that, and the other. You are not ready for college. Are, are you ready to be sent off to college? <laughs> See, even if you said yes, mom would be saying no. 
Why? Because we're going, okay, well, we want you to have some maturity. And so in the wisdom of mom or dad and looking over life, they're going to say, okay, you feel this way. You kind of anticipate this. And yet here's what we, some things that we want you to have kind of under your belt before you actually go off and have 24-7 kind of no parental you know, guidance. That's just good wisdom. That's just smart, guys. And yet we have a heavenly father. So, man, I'm ready for this, God. I'm ready for that. I'm ready to go off. He says, you know, I love you. And you are mature. And I like this about you. But yet I want to develop this muscle so that when I take you there and you have that place, you can succeed and you can do well. He's a loving father that shows fatherly wisdom. So some of the providence of God is just good love and providence over the timing of our lives. Well, what we see here is, <coughs> excuse me, um, uh, he's falsely imprisoned. Look at Genesis thirty-nine twenty-three, the last verse of, of the chapter that we looked at last week. This is kind of where we left the story and where we'll pick it up this morning. The keeper of the prison paid no attention to anything that was in Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. Once again, we see prosperity. That is, not in a prosperity gospel kind of way, but God just is with him and is using him. And we see that this person has no care whatsoever because Joseph is taking care of business. And we see that the reason behind that, because the Lord is with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. This is all happening. And as chapter 40 begins, there are two new cellmates that, is, that are introduced to this jail, this prison. They happen to come from pretty high ranks from, you know, the, the leadership class. Pharaoh's baker and Pharaoh's butler or cupbearer. These are two prominent people because one of the biggest scares to any kind of hierarchy, any type of royalty, any type of uh, leadership in those days was to be poisoned. That's, that's usually how, you know, if somebody was against you, if your enemies were against you, that's the easiest way back in those times that they could do that. And so everybody that was part of leadership, a king, a queen, they had a cupbearer. That is somebody that would come and before the king would drink, they would drink. I don't know if they put it to a 30-second test or if it was a minute. I don't know. But number one, that the, the cupbearer was willing to drink. Number two, that he didn't fall over dead. We're going, okay, I can pretty much trust this. The other per- person that was very important to that was the baker, the one that was baking all of your food. So whether you were drinking, whether you were eating, these are two people that were instrumental in doing this. We do not know why <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, the baker and the butler were thrown into prison. What we can assume is that maybe the Pharaoh thought that there was a plot against him, maybe this poison. And so two key people, okay, we're going to put you in prison because we've heard rumors that somebody was trying to poison me. All we know is that they end up there. Look what happens in verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer of of the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against their lord, their king. Then verse 4 tells us that uh, they're placed in there with Joseph, and he kind of has a little bit of an authority over them. Look at verse 5 and 6. And one night they both dreamed, the cupbearer and the baker, and the king of Egypt, who were confined in prison, each his own dream, and each dream with his own interpretation. 
When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. They're in jail. We don't, again, are not given a time frame, but maybe they're there for a couple days, a couple weeks, a couple months. One night they go to bed and they have a dream and they come, you know, this next morning, individually, they come together and they go, I had a dream last night. It's really disturbing. You had a dream? I had a dream last night. They find out that they both have a dream and they're similar dreams, but they're very specific and individual. And they're really, really upset because we don't know what this dream means. Now, I don't know what you think about dreams. The Bible actually says that God does use dreams. We see it more in the Old Testament than the New Testament. Now we have the Holy Spirit. We're less dependent upon visions and dreams. Now we have the truth of God's revealed word and his spirit that dwells within us. Does God still use dreams to this day? I believe that he does. I don't believe that he's stopped using dreams. I just don't think he does it as much as he did in the Old Testament. And this time, they were going, okay, what is this dream? Because dreams were significant. How many times have you had a dream and you promised yourself at 1.30 in the morning, 2.17, whatever it was, I'm going to remember this dream in the morning? Because, I mean, it was, I mean, it was cold sweats or it was this or it was really good or whatever. And you say, I'm going to remember this in the morning. And then morning comes and you cannot, for the life of you, remember the dream. How many people have done that before? Okay, yeah. I think almost all of us have had that experience. But then there's other times that you have a dream and you're going, man, not only do I remember, but it's still vivid. I can almost see it like a movie in my mind. That's what happened to these two gentlemen. They have this dream and it's very vivid. It's very exact. And yet they're going, we don't know what it means. Look what happens here, because this is a very important verse that we could skip over if we're not really careful. But it shows us something about the character of Joseph. Genesis 40, verse 8. They said to him, that is, these two guys said to Joseph, we have had dreams and there's no one to interpret them. And Joseph said, hey, I'm really good at interpreting dreams. Is that what he says? He doesn't. He says, do not interpretations belong to. Because this is kind of a spiritual matter, guys. He doesn't draw upon himself, even though he is pretty good at interpreting dreams. It seems like it is a gift that God has given him, but he points back to God. Now, here's the important part of this. How long possibly has this been that he has been separated from the dreams that God has given him? 10, 11 years. Okay? When God gives you a dream, as he gave to Joseph, not that God has to explain the timetable, but, you know, could that dream kind of diminish in your mind or maybe the faith of the God who gave that dream begin to diminish in your mind over 10 or 12 years. That would be natural. And yet when these guys have a dream and they said, we don't have anybody to interpret, Joseph comes right back to the foundation of his life. Hey, this is spiritually, don't dreams really belong to God? Guys, he hasn't given up. What is your go-to when life punches you? Your own mind, your own ability to figure out? Or do you just come back to the solid rock? You come back to that anchor for your soul. That's what Joseph, even 10, 12 years into the friction of this experience, he comes back, this opportunity. Hey, this is a thing for God. Look what happens verse 9 through 11. 
So the chief bearer told his dream to Joseph and said, In my dream, there was a vine before me. And on the vine, there were three branches. And, and three, as soon as it budded, its blossoms shot forth, and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand, and I took the grapes, and I pressed them into Pharaoh's cup, and placed them in the cup of Pharaoh's hand. I had this dream, and, and I'm telling you as best as I can, Joseph, this is what the, the dream was all about. Well, Joseph listens to the cupbearer and listens to what he says in response. Verse 12 and 13. <coughs> then Joseph said to him, this is the interpretation. The three branches are three days. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore to you your office. You're going to get your job back. And you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand as formerly when you were his cupbearer. Hey, you're going to be established right back. You were his cupbearer before, his butler before. You're going to get your old job back. You're going to be back in the favor of the Pharaoh. And how long? Three days. He takes this, he interprets it. And what do you think the response of the cupbearer is? Joseph, anything I can do for you, Joseph? Verse 14, Joseph says, as a matter of fact, there is. Only remember me when it is well with you, and please do me the kindness to mention me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this house. For I was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here I have done nothing and yet they have put me into the pit. That, that's his word for where he is right now. doesn't say jail, even though the, 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 the warden has said, hey, you find, I found favor uh, in you, and, and you're very good at what you do, and so you're over a lot of these things. What does he call this place where he is? The pit. Joseph, is there anything that I can do for you? You know, I, I like, if this really comes true, is there anything I can do when I'm back in the good graces of the Pharaoh? Yeah, here's, here's one thing you can do for me. Just, just mention my name. Say that when you were in prison, you met this guy. He seemed like a stand-up guy. And just mention me to Pharaoh. No money. He doesn't demand anything like that. And he tells his story. Because I'm, I'm here in this pit. Well, the baker report, here's this report, and he says, hey, that was pretty good. Let me tell you my dream, because it's kind of similar. Verse 16 and 17. When the chief baker saw the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket, there was all sorts of baked goods for Pharaoh, but the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And again, Joseph says, okay, I got the details. Here's what it means. Verse 18 and 19. Joseph answered and said, This is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. So far we're good. This is what he said to the, the, the butler, the cupbearer. In three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head. Hey, it's still going good. He lifted up this other guy's head, you know, to a place of promise and restoration. But he's going to lift up your head from you and hang you on a tree, and the birds will eat your flesh. Not really, not really the interpretation you wanted. I mean, if, if you're the baker, you're, Joseph, you got anything else? You know, is, is there like maybe a possible plan B for this? 
Here's the thing, guys. Look what happens. Verse 20 through 22. On the third day, when it was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all of his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted to them. Well, what's going on here, guys? In, in real time, what's going on here? Exactly what God had laid upon Joseph's heart would happen, happened. Down to the detail. Three days, this one is going to be restored, this one is going to be hanged. In a way, I see that, you know, God is saying, okay, look, I'm still working through dreams. I'm still, you know, you can hold on to your dream. I know it's been 10, 11 years. There's a part of this that gives great, great hope to Joseph. I believe if I'm Joseph going, okay, I haven't lost my touch. Not that he's thinking about himself, but, you know, God's still working through dreams and, and God is still using me. And he's bringing about in this interpretation and, I, and he showed me the right way to interpret this. There's hope. It's been 10 or 11 years since I've seen dad or my brothers or anybody else, but there's hope that maybe this dream that God gave me when I was 17 years old is still going to happen. Look at verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but what? But forgot him. This, this is where we live, guys. God, I'm great with you. It's just all these people you put me with. I can't rely on them for the life of me. God, you're trustworthy, and yet people are letting me down left and right. This guy asked, after I gave him this interpretation, is there anything I can do for you, Joseph? I didn't ask for money. I didn't ask for this. I asked for one thing. Hey, when you, when you get back in your place and you have audience with Pharaoh, can you just kind of drop my name and say, hey, there was this guy down there in prison that was very, very helpful. He just seems like a solid guy. That's all he asked for. And yet when the cupbearer is restored, he forgets Joseph. Folks, this is the friction of the Christian life. We have blessed assurance that all the promises of Christ are true. And yet, not all of the promises of Christ are yet realized. Let me give you an example, the one that I always go to. Heaven. Is heaven, is that a promise that is already true? To be absent from the bodies, to be present with the Lord. It may not be the new heavens and the new earth yet, but it's to be absent from this body. I believe that my dad is with the Father right now. I believe that if your loved ones were in Christ, they're with the Father right now. There won't be a bodily resurrection until later on. So there's still, but, but there is a heaven. There is a presence with God to, to those who have put their faith in Jesus Christ. And I believe that it is real for those. But for you and I... It is a real truth, but it is not fully realized. It's fully true, but it's not fully realized. This is the friction of the Christian life. And you and I live in that friction of the Christian life every single day. God has made promises. These promises are true, and yet they're not fully realized. And so there's this thing called faith that God requires of us. And part of that faith a spiritual muscle that is so hard to develop, 
is the spiritual muscle of waiting. If God answered everything in your life in three days, do you think you'd have great faith? Sherry's going, yeah, yeah. Three days, I can do three days. What about three years? What about 10 or 11 years? What about 15 years? What about 20 years? That's when faith really gets hard. Let's just call it what it is. That's when faith gets really hard. Because we believe the promise. We believe that God in his word and yet it is not a promise fully realized yet. And so it brings friction. And that friction tries our faith. There was a truth that I wanted you to learn. I believe that God wanted us to learn from Psalm 37. I repeat it throughout that sermon three months ago. That this is a good truth for us to get trained into our mind, into our heart. Waiting time is not... Anybody remember? And that's okay if you don't. I won't be hurt. But nobody remembered. You know, that's okay. That's okay. I'm not not shattered here. The waiting time is not wasted time. Because, you know, a lot of times we do think that waiting time is wasted time. As if God is unaware that we've been waiting for three days, three months, 11 years. As if God somehow has just missed that whole thing. But here's the truth. Waiting time is not wasted time. But guys, please don't take that concept as true as that concept is. And please, for the life of us, please, for the joy of us, please, for the hope of us, don't turn that into a spiritual bumper sticker. See, this is what we do with some of the great truths of God. We reduce it down to a little phrase. And we go up to a hurting person Truly, a, a, a couple who's been trying to conceive for 10, 11 years. Well, just know, waiting time is not wasted time. How cruel. That is insanely cruel. It's a truth, but it's cruel. God's bigger than a little bumper sticker, guys. And when you're in that position and you've been waiting 10, 12 years for something You know, cutesy Christian doesn't really fit. This is the friction of our faith. And so it's with wisdom and with grace and with love that we come and we say, I don't know what you're going through. I really don't. But I know this about my God. In times of my waiting, only afterwards I looked back and sometimes God would kind of fill in the blanks and I would see, And those were some of the hardest times of my life because my faith seemed to get so thin. And we come beside that person in their struggle. We don't lord over them with some kind of cutesy bumper sticker. Well, you know, waiting time is not wasted time. Don't be cruel with the truth of God. Don't be short with people. Come compassionately knowing that all of us are living in the friction of our faith. And some days that faith brings us to the next morning, and sometimes that faith seems to to kind of just be swallowed by the darkness of night. And this is where the body of Christ, this is where brothers and sisters in Christ, this is where we need to be beside one another, and we love one another, and we bring grace and not little bumper sticker faith sayings. It's truth. And yet, live out this truth. 
See, that's where it really gets hard. We're going to conclude here. In Psalm 37, when he said, be still and wait on the Lord. Again, I don't expect you to remember every sermon that I ever preached. But in that, be still in the Hebrew, it means, in a literal translation, be dumb. Do you remember that? It wasn't say, okay, become foolish, become dumb in that sense. No. Be dumb in that you just trust God and that he's the smart one. Don't try to figure it out and don't try to manipulate. Because this is what I'm prone to. This is what Abraham was prone to. Okay, you promised me a son. I'm not having a son. I got a plan. And that plan has forever changed the, the future of this world <laughs> to this very day. We're good at coming up with plans. B, and what God has instructed, be still and wait for the Lord. Be dumb. Don't try to figure this out. Just trust in God. Even though there's friction in your faith, you trust in God and you wait upon him. So how do you do it? How does Joseph hold on when he's in the pit? By holding on to promises not yet realized. I promise you guys, the only way we can say it is well with my soul is if we read this and we go through and we're going, man, I'm on chapter 23, but wait, look what it says in chapter 50. Look what it says here. And I've read this in Acts and I've read this in Romans, but let me tell you what it says in Revelation. And we don't do that with a haughty spirit. We don't do that. We just do it firm, firmly believing God, this is a promise. It is a true promise. And yet it is a promise not yet realized. But I hold on to this promise. And because of that reason, even though right now I am in the pit, it is well with my soul. Let's pray together this morning. Father, we love you. We thank you. And Father, some this morning are in the pit. Father, they would describe their life in the same exact way that Joseph would describe his life this morning. And so, Father, help us not to trivialize the friction of their faith and the hard place that they find themselves this morning. Help us not to come up and, and, and just be real cutesy with our Christianity and with the truths that you so give us. These are treasured truths, Father. And so help us not to diminish them into cute little phrases. But, Father, help us to come down to the pit where people are and empathize and sympathize, and yet encourage them in truth of the promises that are not yet realized. Father, there is great responsibility for the believer who's not in the pit at this moment. And it is not to look and point to the people in the pit and say, well, with a little bit more faith, you wouldn't be down there. Without that sin, you wouldn't be there. Father, will you bring us into the pit with our brothers and sisters and give us a heart of compassion. Thank you that you came into the pit of this world and you clothed yourself in flesh and you dwelt among us to save us and to rescue us, Father. Now, let us, Father, follow that example. So I pray for those that are in times of waiting, whether it's been three days, three months, 11 years, that, Father, today that you would build up in their heart and their mind of faith in the promises yet realized. 
that you would allow them to sing this morning, it is well with my soul. Not because I know the conclusion, not because I know all the answers, not because uh, all that is in the past, but I know that my God is faithful. And that's what brings peace to my soul. It's not the present circumstances of my life, but the one who holds my life. And so we love you, Father. Minister to us, Father. Help us to sing this concluding hymn, Father, in a way that uh, it's not just words on the page, but, Father, it is truly the, the heartbeat and the conviction of our heart and our mind. We love you, Father. I mean, thank you for times of waiting because you're doing something. You're doing something. You're molding us, giving us strength, and preparing us for a day that you have ready for us. In anticipation of that, Father, let it be well with our soul. As we pray this, in the one who's given us this hope, Christ himself. Amen. Thank you for listening today. We hope this message was a blessing to you. To learn more about our church or our media ministry, you can visit us online at www.corner-stone.org or find us on Facebook.